from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, our Sirius XM Business Radio Studio looking on to Locust Walk on a retro spring morning. Feels like fall. Feels like fall this morning. In this in here the studio, this is Cade Massey, co-hosting with my buddy and collaborator here on Wharton Moneyball, Eric Bradlow. Eric, good morning to you. Hey, good morning, Cade. It does feel like a more like a fall morning than a spring morning, but there's lots of sports going on, so it feels like a very active spring day. It, it's that time of year. We're going to be here for the next two hours talking about it. We're here every Wednesday morning. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us. Patty Hall is our producer this morning. Patty's sitting in for Matt Johnson. Maddie's away for the morning. Patty is uh, the boss lady around here, so she, we're in good hands. You can reach her. You can reach her on that phone or drop her an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We're replayed five times over the course of the next week. If you're not listening 8 to 10 Eastern, you're not getting the live, but you can still reach us through that email. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're finally off the ground in the social media world at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. If you want to grab a follow there, we try to stay uh, up to date on what's going on. We try to keep you guys up to date on what we're talking about around here. So we have guests at the bottom of the hour and the top of the next hour, our usual schedule between now and then. Open lines. Give us a ring if you want to join. Eric, anything in particular around the world of sports catch your eye? Well, I'd love to have our listeners call in with something I'm about to talk about at one eight four four Wharton because I'd love to hear their opinion on it's one of those how is this possible type of statistics that you hear. So I was looking at 538.com, obviously a great website on analytics, and uh, this was not including yesterday's NBA games, but they had a prediction for each team's probability of winning the title, okay? And two numbers stuck out at me, one being extremely high, Cade, and one being extremely low. So what do you think was the prediction for the Warriors winning the title? This is winning everything, winning the title. This is on 538.com, probability of winning the title. Okay, so I'm going to back into it with heuristics. Yeah. Uh, if they make the finals, we're going to give them against the East 60-40, which is pretty generous. Okay. Um, if they make the finals. Right. Coming out of the West, I'll, maybe I'll give them 60 again. So I'm going to call it 36%. Okay. But you would agree that anything above 50 or 60% would be just outlandish at it some level. It seems outlandish, yes. Okay. So their probability of winning the title is 62%. 62% on... And, <laughs> so and by the way, what I the give probability first... of making the finals is 68%. Now, you can back out the math like I can. Yeah, so they say if they make 90%. it... 90%. Yeah, yeah. They're 90% now that's, against the East. Okay. I, I believe, but here's the one that's even more shocking. What do you think they have as the probability of the lowly Cavaliers who have just made... LeBron has just made the finals seven straight years and won the title. What probability do you think they give them to win the title? And by the way, for our math well, fans out there, now I know. it must be lower than 38%, 38% or lower, because probabilities do add to one. Right. Well, and we know that they believe that uh, if they face the Warriors, they face the Warriors with 68% chance, and if they face the Warriors, if they get there, they only have a 10% chance of getting it done. So 
we're we're not talking about much probability at all. We're talking about ten percent or something. Uh, less. Go go with the number two percent. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but I like the way you said it, which means even if you give them a, f- it's obviously they give them a seventeen percent, which is roughly twenty percent. Even if they give them a forty percent chance to make it to the finals, you take multiply that by point one, yeah. you're down to four yeah. percent. But I was shocked. The Cavaliers, I think most betters out there, and call me at call us at one eight four four Warden. I think most betters out there, if they were given fifty to one odds right now. On the Cavs. On the Cavs. Of course you would. Oh, who wouldn't? So what's the basis for their model? Do you know, know anything about it? It's yeah. not very encouraging. Yeah. We usually like 538 models. It is. So I, I clicked on it. So this is what I did. I then went a level deeper. Yeah. And I said, I wonder what statistical assessment would make that. So it all comes down to defensive efficiency. So I look at this. The Cavaliers, according to 538, are the fourth best offense in the NBA this season. Um, but there's something like the 23rd ranked defense. As a matter of fact, their plus minus on defense compared by given there's number of 30 NBA teams is negative. So you take right. their offensive strength, you add their defensive strength, you come up with an overall strength, which goes into a power index. This is the first time I can remember in any LeBron James team over the last 10 years. They're negative. In other words, they're a negative 1.9 on this strength index, which is pr- it's about a standard deviation. It really drives down their overall strength. And just to let you know, this, again, was before last night's game. The Raptors, Celtics, and Wizards in the East are all above the Cavaliers, according to 530. I want to say it again. Wow. The Raptors, wow, Celtics... By the way, again, I said before last night's game, the Celtics are now down 2 nothing at uh, They lost both games at home to the Bulls. I, they're definitely not above the Cavs anymore. But pr- just after, before last night's game, they had the Cavaliers fourth in the East. If you want to say what caught my eye in sports, 2% and the fourth best probability in the East, that caught my eye in sports. Mm-hmm. Well, that we know that one of 538's principles is simplicity, really, and communication. And they've wanted to model team strength in a way that was common across sports as much as possible. So they generally have gone with this ELO model, which is a very simple, you know, th- these guys are clearly capable of doing more sophisticated things that they wanted to, but they've chosen, we're going to do something that's kind of simple. It's going to be kind of our, our currency here for, across most sports, most analyses, and it ends up rendering some surprising results. And, and just so people, let me say the one good thing about uh, what 538 is, at least everything's consistent, which yeah, is they have right. them ranked fourth. Which means they have them an 82% chance to make the conference semis. A fourth place team in a conference would make the conference semis, but then only a 40% chance to make the conference finals, and then only a 20% chance to win the, uh, sorry, 40% chance to make the conference finals, then a 20% chance essentially to make the finals. So they basically have them as toss ups on any good team in the East, which is a consistent mathematical so statement. So wh- what do you do with the fact that m- most of our observations on the team come when they're injured this year? And also with the fact that NBA especially, they, they don't really take it seriously until the playoffs, especially when you're a team like the Cavs. You know you can turn it on. You need to rest your players. Yep. Then are we really even getting a reliable signal during the regular season? That's uh, it's an excellent point. It's what people have said in hockey for a long time. Um, let me tell you two data points that relate to that and then what I would do to fix up the ELO model. And I'll explain quickly to our viewers what an ELO model is. Um, the Cavaliers were 11-2 and two against the three aforementioned 
teams that I talked about this year, the Wizards, right. the Celtics, that sounds and the Raptors. Better than 40%. Right. They were 11 and 2. So, you know, when they want to play hard against these teams, they can do so. So, let let's start with that. Secondly, you bring up an important point, which is let me just remind our fans, I'm sure we've talked about this many times on Wharton Moneyball, what's an ELO model? It's actually a very simple model. Team A plays team B. Team A has an unobserved, let's call it strength. Team B has an unobserved strength, and the probability that A beats B is a function of, if you'd like, the difference between those strengths. So if my team strength is 70 and yours is 30, then I'm 70 minus 30 above you. That's 40. That gets translated to a probability. You have a lot of what are called pairwise comparisons. We call them games in sports, and from those you estimate team strengths. But a simple ELO model would assume, let's say, a constant strength across the season, which we call stationarity, which may not be true. A constant strength model suggests that injuries may or may not play a role. So more sophisticated ELO models would build in who was on the court, let's call it home court versus not, early versus the season versus late in the season. It would bring in forms of non-stationarity to allow for more, I'll use your words, Cade, more or less signal for different games and mm-hmm. to let this be varying. Mm-hmm. And that's basically you're right. A simple strength model would say the Cavaliers, by the way, Cavaliers only won 51 games. Remember, they were the second seed in the East. And remember, they were two wins ahead of this of uh, Toronto and the Wizards. So right. if you look at those four teams, the top four teams in the East, a simple model would almost have to have them equal because they all won essentially the same number of games. And by the way, in a simple ELO model, we call this statistical sufficiency. You know what the most sufficient statistic is? Number of wins. Yeah. It right. is sufficient. Right. And so that's what you have. You have four teams that won the same number of games. A model's going to say equal strength. So this is a real challenge right now for the NBA and, and, and in general for the NBA and then especially with the Cavs where you have – kind of a, a little bit of an older guy who carries a disproportionate weight, and you have to preserve him. You just have to. It's unwise to do anything else. So you have a real hard chance. Well, time. they're not doing a very good job. Vic. Oh, by the way, do you know who led the NBA in minutes this season? I know. It's, it's ridiculous. It's, Nick, it's LeBron James. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, by the way, by the way, another stat I heard that's remarkable, um, you would agree LeBron James may not be at the peak of his power anymore, but is certainly not in massive decline, right? Not, not remotely. No. Not remotely. He's passed Michael Jordan in his career in terms of number of minutes played. Wow. He's played, he's now 32 years old, and Michael Jordan, I think, played till 40, I'm going to say. We you know if he had on the Wizards years, or at least 39, 40. He's got six, seven, eight more years to go, and he's passed Michael Jordan for number of minutes played. That's remarkable. It's remarkable. You, you, I would like to see the the age curve done in minutes as opposed to but, just years. But that's Because the what, guy's been carrying that kind of load since well, he was 18 years old. You obviously, you know, with Massey Peabody, you have done a lot of work in the NFL, and you've certainly done a lot of work with uh, you know evaluating players at positions. This is one of the big debates for running backs, right? Is it the age of the running back? Is it the number of carries of the running back? Is it the number right. of hits of the running back? Like, how do you measure, quote-unquote, time? And, you know, by the way, as you know, this is done in statistical modeling all the time. Like, what is the unit of time that's kind of aging things? And this is a this is a wonderful, to me, statistical question to ask about any data set. Right. And having been born and raised in the era of Earl Campbell and in the in Earl Campbell country, 
Um, we're pretty sure that running backs don't go with years on their life. Do I get to give my 30-second anecdote about Earl Campbell again? We could, we could talk for the rest of the show about Earl Campbell well, if we want to. Well, let me say the following. This is my favorite. I think I've said this on Morton Moneyball. I've certainly said this at parties over beers many times. So <laughs> this was the year after. I don't remember what the year was. Somewhere in the mid-'80s or early er, mid-'80s. After, Earl Campbell had just run for 1,850 yards the season before. He's at training camp. Bum Phillips, uh, you know, they have him all, he's the coach, they have him all running a mile. Earl Campbell can't run a mile. He can't literally run a mile. And, <laughs> and the, the press goes to Bum Phillips and says, what are you going to do? Obviously, Earl Campbell can't run a mile. And Bum Phillips goes, oh, great, next time it's third down in a mile, I'm not giving the ball to Earl Campbell. <laughs> and so it's one of my favorite quotes all time in football, and also one of my favorite players all time in football, Earl Campbell. But you're bringing up, he was great. For a short period of time, but no one took more of a beating right. and more yardage, you know, got more yardage in a short period of time than Earl Campbell. Mm-hmm. But he didn't have a long career at that peak level. Right, right. And we're going to stop now because I, I truly could just ramble for the next hour and a half on Earl Campbell. We were, I was ten years old. He won the Heisman uh, Trophy, and they moved training camp to my hometown all the same year. I mean, it doesn't get any better. And by the way, as you know, I was also ten years old. Exactly. That's the way it works sometimes. Exactly. Um, on the NBA. Uh, we've been talking about the 538 power rankings. What about the real world? What, what what has jumped out to you? We're about two games into most of these playoff series. What's going on there? Well, two things have caught my eye, um, and it relates to something I had written down on my notes prior to coming to here on Wharton Moneyball this morning. Um, I have now a theory. There's no, I've not heard this in the news, but it's the Bradlow theory <laughs> that the Cavaliers lost on purpose to be the two seed. Now, let me say why. Okay, if the Cavaliers were the one seed, now of course that means they get home court. We know that in the conference finals, but it would be number one. They would have had to played the Chicago Bulls in round one. Who's on the Chicago? <gasps> Dwayne Wade. So mm. you're so maybe LeBron James did not want to play Jimmy Butler and Dwayne Wade in round one. Let me continue now to round. <laughs> oh, let me, I didn't let me, know by anybody the way, the was scared rankings, of the Chicago Bulls. Well, the Chicago Bulls, by the way, have a higher power rating than the Indiana Pacers. So let's start with that. Wow. Then let's go to the second round. The second round, they don't reseed in basketball. The second round team faces the Toronto Raptors, if they're in the two, not the Washington Wizards. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Washington Wizards have a higher power ranking than the Toronto Raptors. And the Cavaliers were 3-0 and this season against Toronto and 2-1 and this season against Washington, including two games that went to overtime. So I now have a... Th- this is a great conspiracy theory. I have a conspiracy theory that Cleveland was happy to be the two seed, thinking not only first round against Indiana, because LeBron didn't want to necessarily play against his friend D. Wade, but also the second round, by every measurable statistic, Toronto is worse than Washington. You have a soft version of this theory and a hard version. The soft version is they're happy, which is fine. The hard version is they kind of work to get there. Which is more interesting. And I higher, don't know. They lost bar. four of the last five games. They sat LeBron for two of those games. And I don't know. Maybe they didn't exactly want <laughs> like to it. be the one seed. I like it. We could run the numbers and find out how much tougher 
their road was out, out of one. The Celtics rode out of the one seed than the than the Cavs had out of the two. Right, exactly. And but let me just say what did what so obviously what's caught everybody's eye is the Chicago Bulls went into Boston, the number one seed, and you know a, a lot of people would say this is the weakest number one seed maybe in recent memory. They won, <laughs> I think it's fifty two games or fifty one games. By the way, that's a very low maximum for a conference yep. for someone to win, and so. Uh, what caught my eye is Chicago went into Boston and is up to love. Um, and, you know, last night, uh, Toronto and the Clippers kind of got back to one all. So that's kind of impressive. Cleveland's up 2-0. And, you know, we'll, at some point during the show, we're going to transition to hockey. A lot of people say, oh, Cleveland only won two games against Indiana by a couple of points. Well, let me tell you something. It's not that easy to win NBA playoff games. You know, LeBron is now 21-4 and four or something like that against the Eastern Conference in the last three years in the playoffs. People say, well, Cleveland may only go 4-1. and one. All right, they may only go 4-1 <laughs> and one right. against a playoff team? It's also completely binary. It's just win and advance. And they're at this point, they are so into conserving themselves that they're going to do what's necessary to win. Yeah, so they go up 20 points in the fourth quarter, and they only win by 8 or 9. All yeah. right, well, all right, well, that wasn't so bad, was it? Not at all. This is Wharton Moneyball. You can join the conversation one eight four four Wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Cade and Eric in the studio this morning. Eric, another two and O series is the San Antonio Grizzlies series, which is that one's not surprising. People expected the Spurs to do well. This is the two seven, I believe, in the West. But last night after the game, uh, Grizzlies coach Grizzlies coach David Fisdale. Had a little rant. He had a press conference. He ended that press conference early. We're going to play the last. It's a three-minute press conference. We're going to play the last minute of that press conference. It was a very poorly officiated basketball game. Um, Zach Randolph, the most rugged guy in the game, had zero free throws, but somehow Kawhi Leonard had 19 free throws. First half, we shot 19 points, shots, 19 shots in the paint, and we had six free throws. They shot 11 times in the paint, and they had 23 free throws. I'm not a numbers guy, but that doesn't seem to add up. Overall, 35 times we shot the ball in the paint. We had 15 free throws for the game. They shot 18 times in the paint and had 32 free throws. Kawhi shot more free throws than our whole team. Explain it to me. We don't get the respect that these guys deserve because Mike Conley doesn't go crazy. He has class and he just plays the game. But I'm not going to let them treat us that way. You know, I know Pop's got pedigree and I'm a young rookie, but they're not going to rook us. That's unacceptable. That was unprofessional. My guys dug in that game and earned the right to be in that game, and they did not even give us a chance. Take that for data. (laughs) How about that rant, Eric? Well, let me just say the good news is it ended with a very emphatic comment. And by the way, um, he's very passionate about data. And he obviously picked some interesting statistics. You know, we can, you can always cherry pick ones. But he's basically trying to say, let's kind of say how many – this is an actually interesting statistic. He used times in the paint. So how many opportunities were we close to the basket? How many were they? Let's just look at the number of times we went to the foul line, the number of times they went to the foul line. You could tell me they deserve more, but like uh, in, in a ratio way – a five-to-one more ratio, right. it just doesn't add up. So he's basically, I, I actually like what he's doing. He's picking something that the average person would say, 
that just doesn't make sense. How could two teams be at an equal position on the court? And that's what, as you know, a lot of these statistical basketball analyses do. Let's not say we shot threes. Let's pick we were both in the paint a certain number of times, and what base rate did we get to the foul line? There's no planet, he's saying, there's no planet under which they deserve five to six times the rate of us. Right. I don't mind that. That actually suggested an analysis I'm curious if anyone's ever run, which is essentially expected free throws given the the kind of play or the style of play or the frequency in, in the paint, that kind of thing. If you could build a model that said for this game we just observed, you would have expected league across the league this number of free throws. This is what you saw. And then in that heterogeneity, you'd find out that some teams were low, some teams were high, and you'd start trying to understand what de- what determines if a team is low or high on that. So let me just say a couple things. One is I love the analysis you just suggested, so let me just repeat it for all our fans. Let's just say you took the shot locations of all the, all the places, and you can easily compute the probability of a free throw as a function of shot location, given all the tracking software that's out there now. And now you can compute an expected number of free throws. As a matter of fact, you could compute a distribution of the number of free throws, see where the observed one is, and see whether, you know, Dave Fisdale, whether he's outlying or not, whether given where they shot the ball. But let me just say one thing. This is where we always talk about statistical models and the challenges of, of measuring things. So for those people that follow the NBA, there is one big difference between Zach Randolph, who I love as a player, Zebo as they call him, and uh, Kawhi Leonard, who I love as a player. Um, Zebo's not particularly athletic. I mean, he's a big, lumbering guy. Um, non-athletic players, this, these analyses have been done. They've been used as regressors in these types of models. Don't draw as many fouls because mm-hmm. they're not moving as fast. Guys, it's more predictable where Zach Randolph is going to go. Kawhi Leonard is an extremely athletic, like a lithe, fast-moving, angular player. He's going to get fouled more because he's moving at a faster Great. pace. So, Eric, one of the things you're suggesting is that there are player differences, legitimate player differences. And you talk about guys who can who can who can draw the foul. And this is a, a good quality in a basketball player is you can draw the foul. So you want to account for that. Of course, Fisdale's saying something beyond that. He's saying some players get more quote respect than others. And he says his point guard is a classy guy. He's had no technical fouls all year long. He doesn't complain. And maybe he ought to complain because he's not getting respect. Kawhi Leonard obviously is one of the most respected guys in the league. And so there's the chance that some of these player differences aren't well-founded. So one question. So, yeah, 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 we can run. It sounds neat, but it's pretty basic to do just a simple expected free throws given the distribution of shots across the floor. You could take it to the next level and say, okay, now – we're going to model the types of players that have the ball. And given player tracking data, I mean, we, we, we know things like how fast guys move. We know what Russell, Russell Westbrook is doing when he blows past that guy at the, at the top of the key, right? Right. So we could, presumably, model the types of players and then get a better understanding of who draws fouls and who doesn't. And then the residual starts having more meaning. Well, what I would do, here's just a poor man. I like what you're suggesting. Let me just say a poor man's version of what you're saying. I'm standing at a given place on the court. Well, what do you mean by standing? Like, I could be moving quickly at this place on the court. I could be standing stationary at this place on the court. So let's just imagine the only two fact, the only factor you wanted to bring in is, are you moving or stationary? 
So now, instead of computing an expected number of free throws for a given location, I compute an expected number of free throws for a given location, and am I moving or not moving? Then, if you want to get more sophisticated, you can bring in, like, the speed of movement. You could bring in maybe the quality of the defense player. But I want just through that movement, not movement, I wanted to give our listeners a sense of how you can always kind of, what I call it, make something more granular yep. by going one level deeper. Yep. And you don't have to get that sophisticated to do an analysis. That's better than saying, I'm not just going to simply compare Zach Randolph from a given location and Kawhi Leonard. Let's just use movement or speed at that location. And that's going to soak up a lot of that extra variation. Right. And Eric, you're, you're often advocating these kind of back of the envelope uh, calculations, which would be that first level. Now you're taking it down, but you're trying to stay simple. Of course, in basketball these days, the analysts working for teams and some of the academics who have access to these data are working at unbelievably granular levels. So they're going to take it down much further than that. They're going to build player-specific models. I think it's an interesting question because we're talking about a day and age when we have the ability to quantify which guys um, get a break from officials and which guys don't get a break. And it's not surprising that that, that the Grizzlies point guard's not getting it and Kawhi Leonard is. You know, it's a, it, it reminds me, it actually is my second thing on the notes here. I'm not necessarily switching to baseball. I'm not switching to any sport. But one of the things that makes me think of is, so the coach picked out these three or four stats. Now, what that tells me is that there are three or four stats that go the other direction. Because if all of the, if let's say there were seven stats that went against the Grizzlies, he may have listed all seven. It's one of my favorite things (laughs) in sports. Like, for example, um, it's it's not even a matter of the sport. It's a very famous statistician at Cornell. His name's George Casella. He said, so suppose I tell you, Cade, that the Cleveland Cavaliers have won eight straight playoff games in round one. Now, what can you infer from that? Well, number one, you know factually it's not nine straight. Because if they had won nine straight, nine straight seems more impressive than eight straight. So they stopped. They stopped. They, They chose where they stopped. They chose where they stopped. And... They probably didn't go nine and one because nine and one may be more impressive than eight and zero oh in some sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends on how you compute it. And so I'm always interested. So I want to see. I'm going to do this after we're off the air. I'm going to go look at the total box score from that game, and I'm going to see how many statistics favor the Grizzlies because I'm saying he cherry picked. Sure. I'm going to pick one, two, and three. And by the way, I'm not going to say anything about four, five, and sure. six that favored us. Like maybe turnovers, maybe who knows what it is. Right. I'm not going to point out those i love right. when uh, by the way it's one of my favorite phenomena in sports when people cherry pick what they're going to report and they don't even talk about the other stuff I, I i love the point in this case you have to give the coach room to do that kind of advocacy it's it's egregious when analysts do what you're talking about it's almost as egregious when announcers and the press do what you're talking about but i'm gonna let the coach do that i mean that's his job basically well now so now the question is how, as statficians, could we look at the next game and see if you know people it makes say, a difference? Yeah, it make that's a difference, the thing. Right? So now we want to look at the next game and see if there's any mean reversion. And then the question is: even if it reverts, is it just common mean reversion, or did the coach saying anything actually have an impact? And, and, that's, and that's very hard to tease very, apart. Very hard to tease apart. I mean, we're we're forever you know flogging this mean reversion idea because people attribute what is typically just statistical mean reversion to all kinds of things all the time. They mistakenly attribute it all the time. Eric, before we get to the bottom of the hour, is there anything about the NHL playoffs that jumps out to you? Well, again, um, yes. So I looked at the standings in the playoffs. I've actually updated it this morning to the recent games. But suppose I told you, Cade, 
that um, there are five top teams in hockey when I'm during the regular season, which means number of points uh, acquired, you know, number of points obtained during the right, season. Right. Suppose I told you four of those top five teams are currently losing their first round series, and as a matter of fact, um, three of them are down or were down three to nothing. So this, you know, this is the classic thing: the regular season doesn't matter in hockey. Well. Let's see. Let's see. Um, the Blackhawks had 109 points this season. They're playing the Predators. The Blackhawks are down three to nothing. Now, 15 points in hockey is a lot. The Wild are playing the Blues. They had 106 points. The Blues had 99. The Wild are down three to nothing. Wow. The Capitals, the team that had the most points probably in the last five years in hockey, had 118 points. The Lowly Leafs only had 95 points. Two to one Leafs right now. And going back and on the next games in Toronto. Finally, the other one that's kind of mixed is the Yellow Jackets are playing the Penguins. They were basically equal in points. That's the one that isn't there. But it's amazing to me how how many top teams in hockey are potentially they haven't lost yet, but are in threat of losing in the first round. One of the things that jumps out to me about that is last week we talked about how relatively equal most of these series are. That there wasn't that much dispersion. From the regular season uh, points. Well, notice I only picked the top the ones where there are big differences. Well, I intentionally chose the teams with the most points, which means they will be playing the teams with the lower points, which means there will be the greatest. I didn't mention the five series, by the way, that are basically equal. equal, But I I wasn't trying to make a more. I was trying to make a point that top teams in hockey seem to lose a lot more than top teams like in basketball so do, or in other So did we sports. have that opinion before this season? Or, or, or yes. We did? Yes. Well, so is, is, it, is, it, is it basically, when we say this about the baseball postseason all the time, Shane's, Shane's favorite line, it's, it's a coin flip once you get to the postseason. Do we believe that about a hockey too? It's a good question. Um, it is the same length of series, so we can kind of do a comparison in that sense. Um, I think there's lots of, you know, one of my favorite papers ever written was first by Fred Mosteller, a famous statistician, then it was done by Morshin and Schmidtline, is can a hot goalie win the Stanley Cup playoffs? Like, yep. Who cares what the other people on the ice are doing? You know, Put Hen- Henrik Lundqvist back over there. When Henrik Lundqvist gets hot, this is the Rangers goal. And you know what? We're beating any team. Doesn't matter. You can't get it past the goalie. You cannot beat that other team. That's the story, anyway. That's the conventional. That's the so these, conventional... Guys dig in, these guys dig into the stats to figure out whether it's true or not. Right. They dig into the stats. And it turns out a hot goalie can change the win probability something like 20 to 25%. So it's actually a very, very significant margin. It's wow. a huge variation in hockey. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of empirical data to suggest that hockey has much more variability. Okay, but it, you're, you're saying that's still structural as opposed to just sheer uncertainty. Baseball usually feels just like sheer uncertainty, right? You're giving a structural explanation for why it might be different in the postseason than in the regular season. Well, people also can give the same structural reason for baseball. I'm playing my look, I'm not, you know, I'm not playing my fourth and fifth starter, neither are you. You know what? The better team, yeah, they're better. You know why they're better? Because their fourth and fifth starter are better. You know where that fourth and fifth starter are in the playoffs? They're on the bench. Mm-hmm. So who cares? If I got three good and you got three good, you know why? You win ten more games than me because your fourth and fifth are better than my fourth and fifth. That's another. So That's, I'm saying one, so could, a make structural, it, structural one could make an equal structural reason for baseball. We do know one question is just how much signal there is in a single game across sports. And we know that there's the lowest signal in baseball. And 
I believe the most signal in 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 basketball could be football, but hockey's somewhere between those two things. Yeah, I don't know that it's well. Let me. Ask, I was thinking, you know, when I was talking about possibly the Cavs throwing a game, you're, you're our, and you know as much about the NFL as maybe anybody on this planet. Could you ever imagine? Maybe it is true. Could you ever imagine an NFL team losing a game intentionally? To get what they figure is a better playoff matchup. They won't even let a guy score when they should let a guy score. There's no way they're going to throw it. No way. Okay, that's the bottom of our first quarter. We have three more quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Some combination of us are here this morning. It's Cade Massey, Eric Bradlow, our buddies Shane Jensen. Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner are out doing Shane and Audie things this morning. They'll be back. You can join the conversation, one wharton That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us. The email address is businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. It's a great way to reach us if you're hearing this one of the Five times we're replayed over the course of the next week. I want to remind you that we are off the ground on the social media world. You can follow us on Twitter. The handle is at W Moneyball. At W Moneyball. We're up there every now and then talking about stats and sports and those kinds of things. We have been talking a little hockey and a lot of basketball, but there is another sport up and running and a sport I know it's close to Eric's heart. We are happy, as always, if we're talking baseball on Wharton Moneyball. We can make a call to the bullpen. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. On the 0-1 count, Chipper Jones hit 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Warden Moneyball's Call to the Bullpen with Rick Peterson. Rick, good morning to you. How are you? Good. How are you guys doing today? We're doing we're doing fine. Doing fine. Welcome to the show. Always glad to hear you. Always a pleasure. Rick, uh, as as people know, Rick spent a lifetime in baseball. He's uh, spent time as a pitching coach with the A's, pitching coach with the Mets, most recently the pitching development coach for the O's, and uh, and even more recently the author of a new book, Crunch Time: How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Very cool book about performance under pressure, Rick. Uh, are any teams feeling pressure yet? Is it so early that they're still relaxed, or are some folks out there feeling some pressure? You know, I, I think I think probably right now, probably the Blue Jays and the Mariners might be feeling a little bit of pressure right now because they're not um, performing quite as high as expected. Yeah, exactly. And and then you know, but plus, I, I think it's not just the, the the way that they're performing and the fact that they're losing games, but it's how they're losing games. Um, and you know, they they have. You know, very potent offenses, and their offenses haven't haven't got on track. And you know, strikeouts are like just off the charts uh, to start the season. And they have been, you know, that's been a trend over the last couple of years. <clears throat> strikeouts have been at an all time high. Walks have been at an all time low. Um, you know, so it, it, early in the season, you, you can't you can't do anything to really to really secure the fact that you're going to win coming coming late in the season in October, but 
you can you can certainly put yourself in a bad place that <laughs> that you that you that you can lose. Right, you dig you dig holes, right? So, Rick, this is Eric Bradlow. First of all, it's been a few uh, maybe months since we've spoken since I've missed the couple shows you've been on. So, first, it's great to talk to you again, Rick. Yeah, awesome. So, I had a question. So, um, I always do the following math, and I'm always interested from the coaching side. Do people start doing that math? So, at least as of yesterday, I hadn't looked at the outcome of yesterday's game, but Toronto was two and ten. Do teams mm-hmm. ever start doing the math and say, okay? For us to get back to 500 over the next 40 games, we need to therefore play 600 ball. That's a 97-win pace. We're playing like a 30-win pace. How are we going to get there? Do teams ever do that mental math about how much it's going to take to dig themselves out of a hole? The front office does. Um, and, 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 but, I, but I think more than anything, the way that you phrase it is, is kind of like, okay, you know, we're – we're trying to dig ourselves out of a grave. The way that the way the uniform people want to more look at it is like how simple this is to get back, not how difficult it is to get back. Uh-huh. You know, so, so, they'll, so they'll say, okay, you know, let, let's let's project it to the end of May, and then they'll start saying, okay, listen, if we if we can just win, you know, like we have ten series to play, meaning we, we play ten different teams, and and if we can win nine series. That that's going to put us one game over 500, and then you go back to your track record and say, look, you know, we, we've done this, we've done this. How many times have we done this? You know, over the last 10 years, you know, so, so you, you try to do it in a way. And again, it, it comes from really a lot of the content that's in our book, Crunch Time. It, you, you look at it as an opportunity, and you say to yourself, okay, hey, here's our here's our opportunity right here. You know, it, and like I'll, I'll backtrack just for a second. Like like when you look at Tom Brady, Tom Brady, and 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 his club, they went into the locker room at halftime with, the, with one of the biggest deficits in Super Bowl history, and they said, listen, we have an opportunity to, to, to have the greatest comeback and the greatest win in Super Bowl history. You know, so, so you look at it from more of an opportunity. Would uh, teams ever change their tactics? Like, for example, let's take your side of the ball, if you'd like, the pitching side. Would a team ever, like at 2-10, and 10, say, look, we, I, I'm not worried about three games from now. I'm going to pitch my closer five outs instead of three. I'm not going to let this person stay in as long, even though, in other words, will teams change their in-game strategy based on how they're doing in the season? And like, you know, two and 11 seems much worse than two and 10, certainly four and 20. It's the same winning percentage. Now you're in a really big hole. Will teams actually kind of, I hate to put this way, will they ignore something you were part of building money ball by, because of where they are in the season, in some sense, place more importance weight on, we got to win this game. Not not on the fourteen fifteen game trend, but if it's a trend that 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 has lasted into last year, and you start to say, "Hey, listen, we didn't think that this trend was going to continue, but it's continuing right now." Mm-hmm. What you get what you get most concerned about is when you start having, and and, if, and I think you've seen a rash of it so far, a rash of injuries in your starting pitching, because that is so difficult to replace, especially if you're talking about. To the middle, to the top end of your rotation, like like for example, you know San- Sanchez uh, or Sanchez, I think for Toronto that had a great year last year, and and now he's out with, with an injury, and and it starts to become a trend. And they were concerned about him coming into this year. They really monitored his right. you know, his innings last year. Um, so so when you look at it like that, 
because starting pitching is the most expensive commodity in all the sports, and, and nobody has enough of it. Right. There's, not, there's, just, there's just not enough of it in the industry. Right. It's a little and, bit like the, the quarterbacks in the NFL. It's, it's forever a scarce thing, and if you don't got it, you're kind of desperate to get it, which raises the question of how do you keep these guys healthy? I know this was a big part of your life for years, and, and we, you know, we know from talking to you over the last three years that you're always prioritizing the health of the pitcher. There was a recent piece in the Wall Street Journal by our buddy Mike Salfino, Fellow Jerseyite for you there, Rick. Mike Salfino writes for the journal periodically. And mm-hmm. he did a small piece on Syndergaard, and, and the, the observation on Syndergaard was, look, this guy's got the fastest fastball in the majors. Average of 98. Average of 98 over the last two years. And basically, you know, there are a few guys in that territory, and they're all getting hurt. What are the chances that he can keep throwing at that speed, which is almost untouchable, and stay healthy? Well, yeah, you question it. There's no question that you question it. And, and the other thing that's interesting about Syndergaard is that his perceived velocity is is high as well. So perceived velocity, what what that literally means is they, they it's a track man measurement that they measure when the ball comes out of your hand, how far are you in front of the rubber, your extension. And so the average in a big league is just over six feet which means that the ball is traveling 54 feet to get the home plate. Syndergaard, because of his size and his, his, his you know, reach or however you want to say it, his limb, the, the length of his, his arms, and also he's, what is he, 6'6", six, 6'7", six, 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 that when the ball comes out of Syndergaard's hand, he's, he's about 7.5 feet from home plate or, or from the pitching rubber, which means his fastball is only traveling 52.5 feet. Wow. So his perceived, his perceived velocity is two miles an hour faster than what his actual velocity is. So his average 98 is, is perceived to the hitter as 100. So what, what you get concerned about, especially if he's a max effort guy, and he has talked about that quite openly, that, that he puts everything into every pitch. So the concern you get with that is the fact that when you put max effort into it, the chance of you being on time all the time, so when you Oh, sounds like we might have just lost Rick. That, Rick, you're cut, you're, Rick, we've lost you a little bit. Let's just hang on for a second and see what it takes to get you back. But he was interesting. He's talking about Syndergaard being a max effort guy. You might, do you remember, Eric, who we had recently talking about uh, a historical picture? It's almost a Sandy Koufax kind of era. And he was writing about or talking about he really took off when he realized he needed to back off just a little bit. Now, maybe that was Rick. I think that might have been Rick talking. I think yeah. that was Rick. We've got Rick. Yeah. Rick, are you back with us? Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, so when you were talking about Sandy Koufax, we actually, that's one of our chapters in Crunch Time. It's talking about try easy and that whole effort of, of backing off just a little bit. And Sandy talked about the fact that before he became Hall of Famer, Sandy Koufax, when he struggled his first six or seven years in the big leagues, Towards the end of spring training, he was scheduled to pitch five innings in a B game, which is not the main stadium. It's like in the backfield. And the pitcher that was going to follow him was, was supposed to pitch the last four innings. Well, that pitcher missed the plane uh, for that, you know, for, to, he, he didn't make it to the game. So Sandy said, hey, listen, I could pitch a couple extra innings. So his catcher, Norm Sherry, and his roommate said, listen, at this time in spring training, you don't want to extend yourself and, and put yourself in, in harm's way. So let, let's just back off a little bit today. Right. Put your foot off the let, Let's go about 80%, 90%. And Sandy said the pitcher that pitched that game, he pitched a no-hitter that day, a complete game no-hitter. <laughs> and, he, and he said the pitcher that finished that game 
was the pitcher that went on to be the Hall of Fame. Pitcher exactly. So what what do you do if you're if you're a pitching coach for Syndergaard? Is there any argument to be made that he ought to not be this max max effort every pitch guy? Absolutely, totally. And 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 at ASMI, Dr. Andrew's lab with Dr. Fleischer, they've done studies saying that. At 75% effort, you'll achieve 90% of your velocity. It's a, it's a subjective measurement. 90% of your effort will achieve 100% of your velocity with your ability to locate. 100% of your effort will, proceed, will, 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 will give you 100% of your velocity with no location. Right. So the point I was, point was going to make, when you're watching a game, like let's say with Syndergaard, and a right-hand hitter is up, and he's trying to throw a fastball. The intent is to throw a fastball down and away to a right-hand hitter, and that ball ends up up and in on the other side of the plate. He's late at foot contact. And when you're late at foot contact, that's when you start wearing out the tread on that UCL because those elbow injuries are not very, very seldom, very rare is this one pitch. This is a whole. This is a wear and tear, a slow wear and tear. So, Rick, so you're, like, you've got the luxury of kind of looking around the league now and, and opining about what different pitching coaches should be doing with their talent. If you were managing Syndergaard this season, what would you do? Would you? I mean, obviously he's an ace, and they want to get some mileage out of him during the regular season to position themselves well for the playoffs. But how might you use him differently beyond just coaching? How might you strategically use him differently in order to preserve him? Well, I think I would use him the same way. He had 30 starts last year with 183 innings, which is, you know, that's that's very conservative. Um, you know, that's conservative. Not, so these days, even six innings per start is conservative. All right. Well, yeah. I didn't realize. Look at Greg Maddox averaged six innings a start. He had what 350 wins somewhere in that range. Um, but I think with Syndergaard, more importantly, I, I think what I would do is I would have a conversation with him and say, "Hey, listen, you you." You, you average, you, you, you use your fastball like 63, 64, let's say 65% for a round number. So in 100 pitches in a game, you're throwing 65 fastballs. If we just got our foot off the gas pedal a little bit and, and we threw this fastball 50, 95 to 96, which is which your perceived velocity is 97, 98. Right, he's got some and, cushion. Right, and let's say we threw 50 of those fastballs, 95, 97. And now when you have money on the table – and you have a big a, a big hitter that you have to get this guy out, and this is this may be the game. Now put your foot on the gas pedal and go ahead and throw this ninety nine to a hundred. Mm-hmm. Maybe fifteen, maybe fifteen of these fastballs are max effort. And the and like like you, you watch Verlander, Verlander does that. Verlander will pitch like at ninety one, ninety three, you know, somewhere in that range, averaging ninety two, ninety three, ninety four. And then and then he'll throw about ten fifteen fastballs that are like ninety six ninety seven right? ninety eight. That's neat. Yeah. That's so, neat. so Rick, let me ask you a question. Um, we were actually just talking about this, but it related to more like the football. But in baseball, how about the opposite? How about you say the following: Keep pitching hard, but we'll have you skip a start. Like, what is time in baseball? Yeah, like, good. is it number of max pitches, or can someone rest and restore? Like. Would that be equal? And it sounds like you're saying no. You'd be better taking each pitch down a notch as opposed to just giving him, you know, a, like once every seven starts, you skip his start or something. Yeah, let me let me use this analogy for you. So you drive your car. You put your foot on the brake aggressively. Your car pulls to the right. You can still drive your car, and your car you'll get good gas mileage. Your car will perform. You're not getting forty thousand miles out of that front tread on your tires. So even if you drive your car less, 
<laughs> but but when you put your foot on the gas on the brake, you're you're wearing out the tread. Mm-hmm. So, so so all those pitches that you're late, that you're late on, that you max out, you're wearing out the tread. So it's just a, it's just a, it's just accumulation. It doesn't matter. I mean, if, if you if you drive your car 100 miles that day, and then you sit your car in the driveway for two weeks, and then go back out and drive it again. You you you're, you didn't restore the tread on those front tires. It's you're great. It's, it's nice, nice analogy and a, and a very clear prescription for managing pitchers. We're talking to Rick Peterson. Rick's a longtime friend and uh, guest on the show. He's former major league pitching coach and author of Crunch Time. Rick, there's a, we were just talking about the Salfino article in the journal. There was another one recently about about uh, left-handed pitchers in Fenway. They've got. <laughs> I don't know, a century of history of guys just having a hard time getting it done. They've got to go against righties with that, with the green monster just right behind them. They quoted, I forget which pitcher it was, but they quoted a pitcher saying it's like pitching in a, in a phone booth. What, what, what is your experience taking pitchers into, into Fenway? Or what, are you, what do well, you hear talking to guys about that? Well, you know, we had Mulder and Hudson, you know, that, that when we would come into Fenway. And I think two things. Number one, the sink of all pitchers, um, you know, those, those are the guys that fare much better because they're, because they're ground ball guys. Right. You know, and when you look at, when you look at sabermetrically, it's the guys with low spin rates. So if you have a lower spin rate on your fastball, you hear people talk about spin rates. The lower spin rates are guys that have, that have more, more sink and then they'll get more ground balls. Is that so partly balls, because a, a high, high, high spinning ball will rise? A, a fastball with a lot of spin will rise, no? Not necessarily rise. It just won't. Gravity won't affect. Oh, it, it won't. As much. It won't go down as much. Right. 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 We. We. It so feels it, like it's, it's perceived as a rise, but it's actually just not falling. Got it. Got. Got it. You're exactly right. Okay. So, so what's? Two, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. That, the two things that fare well are the sinker ball guys because if the ball hits the ground and goes out, it's only two bases. <laughs> so, and the other guys that fare well are guys that pitch inside against righties. Mm-hmm. And Zito had Zito had that late cut on his fastball that really bore in on righties, you know, so, you know, those two styles of pitching will, will, will fare fair, fairly well, but, but there's a lot of left-hand pitchers that have what they call that late tail yep. that riding. Well, that riding tail seems to like, it goes a long way over the green monster. <laughs> right. So we've got, we've, we're watching, you know, the Sox traded for Chris sale and gave up a lot in the process, and they, presumably they were expecting more than they've gotten from him so far. He's not doing tragic, but he's certainly uh, far above what they'd like. Well, how would you analyze him as a pitcher, and did the Sox, was, is he the kind of guy they should have gotten, or did they make a mistake in going for him? Well, he's, he's one of the premier lefties in the game, and his numbers against righties are, are outstanding. And, you know, he typically is not a big home run guy. Um, the danger with Chris Sale is that the breaking ball – the breaking ball that, that left-handed pitching to right-handed batters, that kind of like slider-type breaking ball, like an Andrew Miller, like a Sale, when you throw that down and into a righty, and very seldom do you want to use the word always or never, but you always want to throw this for a ball. You never want to throw this for a strike. I see. The, the breaking ball coming towards a batter, left-handed towards right-handed pitching, or right-handed towards left-handed hitting, that that stays in the strike zone, that ball goes a long, long way because <laughs> what it does, what it does is it forces the batter to stay inside the ball, which means that that you're as a left hand hitter, your your right elbow stays in towards your rib cage. 
the same thing in golf, same principle when you spin, when you hit a golf club. Um, and that, what that forces you to do is spin faster. So you're actually speeding up the bat. Got it. Doing that. Rick, a basic, basic question here. How much does a, the typical breaking ball move? So if you, if you don't want to leave it in the strike zone, does that mean you need to start it in the strike zone? Or does anybody actually start it outside and bring it all the way across the strike zone? No, you, you, what we call that, we call it a back foot slider, meaning, meaning that you throw it to the back foot of the batter. That, that's your target line. And, 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 and you see Andrew Miller. I saw Andrew Miller last year. He, he threw two sliders to two right-hand hitters. They swung at it, and it hit their back foot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, I mean, that's really what you call it. You call it a back foot slider. Got it. All right. Well, Rick, I wanted to ask you, you know, we spend, you know, as you know, as the as – the, um, NFL draft comes up, every, and you know the NBA draft gets a lot of play. The MLB draft right. doesn't seem to quite get as much. The question I want to ask you specifically is, how much uncertainty is there in the MLB draft at the top of the draft? You know, um, and because that's one of the things people just—it's obviously the groundbed of how many teams build themselves. How much uncertainty is there in evaluating pitchers and players? It's, it's the, the uncertainty is off the charts high. And especially, especially high school pitchers. High school pitchers are not a not. That's not a good. That's not a good bet. You know, when you when you take a look at premier high school pitchers and how they turn out into the big leagues, high, high school pitchers typically take historically about 500 minor league innings to possibly get close to the big leagues. That's a lot. That's a lot of innings. You know, that's that's basically three and a half full seasons. And you know, and when you look at the draft, I mean, there was a great segment I saw the other day. On MLB Network, on Mike Trout, and they were t- Mike Trout. I think went like twenty something in the first round, and they were t- and actually actually they interviewed Billy Bean, and, and they were because Billy Bean actually went to see him. You know, they, they, the scouts thought so highly of Mike Trout that they they said, Billy, you got to go see this kid play. Well, he went zero for five that day and really didn't hit a ball well, but but he showed a lot of athleticism. But because he didn't show that well that this one particular day. You know, it was it was a tough choice, and you know, so when you look at all the teams that passed up on Mike Trout, twenty teams passed up on Mike Trout. Right. I mean, this this guy's numbers are like, you know, and here's a high school player in a small town in New Jersey. You know that, that you start. Yeah, it's and, essentially and, but, impossible, it, Rick. That's a fantastic example, and it's a great lesson for us as we roll into the NFL draft. I mean, if Mike Trout was passed on by twenty people. And, you know, those guys are probably more observable than, than football players are. That's fantastic. Rick, we well, always I, love I, hearing from you, man. We always love having you on the show, and we always could keep on talking to you forever. But we're going to have to hop away and take a break. Wish you the best out there. Thanks right. for being here with us. My pleasure, guys. Always a pleasure. Take care, guys. You bet. That was Rick Peterson, regular guest here, longtime friend of the show, author of Crunch Time and 15 years in the majors as pitching coach and pitching development coach. That is the halfway point of Wharton Moneyball. We still halfway. To, we still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. We're at the halfway point of the show. We're doing two hours 
as we do every Wednesday morning, two hours live, 8 to 10 Eastern, 8 to 10 a.m. That is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Eric Bradlow. Shane and Audie are away. We just off the phone with our longtime friend Rick Peterson. Enjoyed the conversation about baseball. Always keeps us kind of up to speed on what's going on in the baseball world. We spent much of our opening half hour talking about basketball, and we're going to change gears a little bit here for the next half hour. If you want to join the conversation, one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us, Patty Hall, sitting in for Maddie J this morning. We'll take your email business radio at. SiriusXM.com. Just a reminder, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall, off the ground, running in the world of social media. In the next half hour, praise God, we have NFL draft, we have football conversation coming. On the way into work today, I'm noticing that... I'm going to want Danielle to play the NFL music, you know, I got to get pumped next, up. Next week, we're going to do that because we'll be a day away. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Philadelphia is kind of crazy right now, pro draft. You go to the train station, the huge banners all over the place. The buses, the buses this morning are saying, welcome to Philadelphia, home of the NFL draft. The, have you seen the, what they're building out there in front of the museums? They're, it's huge. For weeks now, they've been building out... The draft is going to be hosted in Philadelphia, and it's going to be outside on the museum campus, right? The steps, the Rocky steps, are hosting the NFL draft this year. I'm very excited about it, and uh, as you know, you and I will be there. So that will be pretty we're, exciting. We're going to be there. We're going to, we're, first, SiriusXM is going to do a show. We're going to do a little Wharton Business Radio show out there. And then Eric and I get the privilege of sitting in uh, with some of some of the honored guests, which will be fun. I'm not sure how we swing that, but we did. All right, so to talk football, to talk draft, to talk stats, we have two new guests in the next half hour. So... Victor, Julian, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Hey there, how's it going? We're doing real fine. Glad to have you. Victor Adana, Associate Professor of Math, Stats, and Computer Science at McAllister. McAllister's in St. Paul, Minnesota. And Julian Wolfson, Assistant Prof in the Division of Biostats, at, also in Minnesota, University of Minnesota, School of Public Health. Very much appreciate you guys making the time and joining us this morning. Yes. Thanks for having us. We, um, we, you caught our eye with your work uh, recently published in the Annals of Applied Stats on predicting NFL quarterback performance from the things that people use to predict NFL quarterback performance. We want to dive into that more in just a minute. It's always it's a perennial question. It's the most important, one of the most important questions in the NFL. But before we get there, we want a little background on you guys. I'm especially intrigued because I understand you both come from Montreal originally. Not a whole lot of NFL quarterback activity in Montreal. How, how did you get from there to here? Well, um, Julian, do you want to go first? Why'd you go ahead? Well, um, even growing up in Montreal, I was always a huge, huge NFL fan. Um, I, I watched a lot of CFL as well, perhaps not. Oh, CFL, right. Got it. Okay. Right, right. I'm, I'm a huge New York Jets fan, so... Uh, Victor, how did that happen? How, how did that happen? I think what happened was uh, they were just a team that was on TV a lot, one of the local teams. Uh, my brother ended up being a Patriots fan, which, which made for interesting family dynamics. And right. Still does. But, um, <laughs> I'm sorry you got the short end of that one, Victor. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was a tough one. That's a tough one still to this day. Uh, but uh no so so and then of course i went into statistics and uh you know i want to appreciate sports at a, a little bit more sophisticated level and so that's how i got into thinking about you know answering questions in in 
in good ways. Okay. So, Julian, I understand you did your Ph.D. work. So, Victor did his Ph.D. work there in Quebec at McGill, but you went to the University of Washington. So, you got infected by the teams in the Pacific Northwest. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I, I, I was more of a casual football fan growing up, so not a, not, a huge, uh, not, a, not a huge follower. I would watch it on occasion. But, you know, when I moved to Seattle, um, I really got into reading a couple of blogs that were pretty analytics-oriented and started to really kind of dig into the game a little bit. And, um, you know, while I was there, I got uh, obviously sort of caught up with the Seahawks. And um, so I, I just want to say that that was in, you know, the early 2000s before they uh, they sort of got this uh, whole bandwagon following that they did. So I consider <laughs> myself sort of a semi, at least a semi-legitimate uh, right. Seahawks fan. I've been a fan for, for a little while now. Um, but, uh, yeah, but I did my, uh, I did my, Julian, those of us who can really claim that were there in the expansion years of Jim Zorn and Steve Largent. Now, if you can claim that, (laughs) that's fair. Uh, so guys, you, you're going from being, you know, casual and growing NFL fans to doing a very legitimate academic paper on predicting quarterbacks. How does, how does that work? How does that happen? How did you get kind of sucked into that level of detail and rigor? Yeah, I mean, I think what, what what sort of happened is, you know, as I was as I was going through my PhD program, and then sort of starting um, starting an academic career, you're just kind of keeping an eye out for for interesting problems that come across. And uh, you know, Vic, Victor and I had uh, have a, have a personal connection because, uh, you know, I hope Victor doesn't mind me throwing this out there, but my my dad was actually his PhD supervisor. Oh, neat! Um, at, wow. uh, at McGill, so okay. we, we we sort of knew each other from there, and we both ended up in the in the Twin Cities area. Uh, There's a kind of a unique we, connection between uh, academic sons and 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 biological sons. I've got a, I've got yeah. I, I know my advisor's son as well, and it's a neat it's a neat thing. Yeah, so so you know I think what happened is we we kind of wanted to do something together, and uh, and you know Victor had a pretty strong interest in sports statistics, and you know we were looking at a couple of a couple of papers, and like a lot of a lot of academic problems, we just sort of thought you know here's a here's a problem that we didn't feel was being necessarily well addressed by the existing uh, the existing literature so we kind of jumped in so uh, Julian uh, what was or or Victor what was let's say Julian what was the hole you noticed because you know I've spent years doing some work uh, predicting player performance um, first maybe tell our listeners on Wharton Moneyball what hole you noticed that had to be filled and then we can get into the details of what you did sure yeah so the biggest uh, the biggest thing that we noticed was that um, when when people went and started to look at uh, player performance based on uh, based on college statistics, for example, uh, what they were doing is they were saying, well, what do we do with the people who have never played um, in an NFL game? Um, so people who were drafted and just just never show up on the stat sheet at the professional level. Um, and a lot of the uh, previous analyses that had been done, because people didn't accumulate any statistics, just discarded those those people. Um, and so the problem with discarding those people is you're essentially assuming that those people look like the people who were drafted around the same place who did actually get to play. Uh, and we sort of thought that seemed like a questionable assumption, given sure. that presumably the coaches have some input in who gets to play and who doesn't, and that's derived to some degree on their performance maybe in practice. Um, so that was really the thing that we were trying to address. So let's just let's just underscore that for a moment because that's such a big deal in Statats. You're talking about your you you have sensor data and you've got to deal with that in some sophisticated way as opposed to just if you if you throw that out then you have a biased sample. Yep, and that's and right. and so 
Uh, so, you know, most lay people aren't actively addressing that issue, but this is a, a really important issue if you do try to dive into this data and try to answer some question. How do you how do you handle that? Well, so I'll I'll just I'll just jump in and then Julian Great. can add on. So, you know, I mean, the one paper that we that sort of caught my eye and I think Julian's eye was uh, was a paper that actually concluded, you know, the draft position wasn't related to quarterback success. And at least for me, you know, when you, when you hear that kind of conclusion, that that really makes you stop and and look at what they did. I mean, um, prima facie, that has to be wrong. I mean, the, we 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 know that has to be wrong. Great. So, what did, what did you find when you when you dug into it? Right, right. So it, again, it's the kind of eye popping conclusion that you know you want to look at, and uh, and so this paper sort of it did a good job of um, contrasting sort of different ways of measuring success. Sort of one based on what I guess they call cumulative measures. So you know. I mean, you could think of it as simply, you know, number of touchdown passes, number of, you know, passing yards. And then there's more sophisticated ones that are kind of composite metrics, um, quarterback score or something that kind of combines all these things. Right. And then com- comparing that with, um, with per-play metrics. And the goal of per-play metrics, of course, is to, um, to acknowledge the fact that, you know, you might not have a lot of cumulative, you know, a, lo- a large cumulative value simply because you didn't get to play very much. Right. And they're trying to even out that field. Right. Uh, and depending on whether you use these cumulative metrics or per-play metrics, you get very different conclusions about whether success is related to draft position. Uh, and so then, you know, the, ar- the, 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 the what the argument boils down to is do you believe that people are accumulating statistics because they're simply given opportunities uh, sort of kind of at random, or not, not necessarily at random, but perhaps based on, based on their big contract or sure. uh, where they were drafted. Right. Uh, or are they being awarded these opportunities because they're actually better than the players who are not given those opportunities? Tough, tough to part. So, Victor, let me ask you, this is Eric Bradley. Let me ask you a question. We deal with this in marketing all the time. We deal with this. We're in a business school here in economics all the time, which is, you know, it's somewhat, what we, as you guys know, it's called endogenous. The problem is someone's drafted in a certain position, they get more opportunities. But isn't that, I mean, I understand that's not from a statistical, pl- clean measure point of view what you want to measure, but isn't that part of the process? Like, in other words, I know if I draft somebody in the 15th slot of the first round, here's their likelihood of getting to be able to play. Here's their likelihood of here's how many plays they're likely to play. I mean, while it's not the scientific measure, isn't that the reality? And therefore, yes, you're integrating into it coaches' decisions, but isn't that something, you know, when you draft somebody in a certain position, you would actually potentially want to be part of the output? Well, I would tend to fall in that camp, but uh, but obviously not everybody does. Um, you know, I I think you know Julian can say more about this, but you know we we think that um, coaches get to see players every day. Scouting, you know, scouts get to see a lot of of practice and film, and we get to see them, you know, once a week maybe, and so. If we had to sort of pick between the two possibilities, you know, are these opportunities being doled out sort of somewhat, you know, not because of merit, 
I'd rather believe, you know, these people are watching these players on a daily basis. They they know they know what they're doing, at least to some extent. Oh, that's such a strong assumption to start with. Now you've got me going because I'm more the behavioral economist here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there was a – I'm going to forget the methodology here, but there was a paper by Colin, Re- Web- Colin Cameron and Rob Weber, Roberto Weber, years ago. R- Rob was his Ph.D. student. And they did this in basketball. They looked at whether there was an escalation of commitment in yeah. basketball, whether you overplayed – you guys know this paper – whether you overplayed draft pick – guys as a function of their draft pick. Yeah. And I guess it would be hard to parse because you want to make sure that you're wrong before you let this guy go. And if you grant them – you know, they had a prior that was pretty strong and they drafted him early. It's going to take a while to overcome that prior. But I, I have a lot. I have a lot of regard for those guys, and I've forgotten the details. But they definitely concluded that there was some kind of escalation of commitment. Yeah. So it's. I mean, the sunk cost fallacy yeah, or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But let's 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 go beyond that to what you guys did found because you guys you, you dug into this as you say in a more rigorous way than many have in the past. How would you? How would you summarize what you did and what you found? And just to remind people, we're talking to Victor Adana and Julian Wolfson. They are two of the three co-authors, the third being Robert Schmicker, uh, on a paper called The Quarterback Prediction Problem, Forecasting the Performance of College Quarterbacks Selected in the NFL Draft, um, submitted to the Annals of Applied Stats. Yeah, and Julian and Victor, maybe just to follow up on Cade's point to dig down on what you did, doesn't it essentially, and this is what I'd like to hear from you, doesn't it eventually come down to, so what data did you use to make this prediction? You know, as we all know, there's combine, there's there's, uh, NCAA data. Um, What did you guys do? What did you guys find? Sure. So I can I can kind of uh, address sort of where where, where we got the data from. Um, but uh, we we get, we got data from uh, roughly 15 years um, of quarterbacks who were drafted. Um, so that was sort of our, our starting data set. And uh, and Rob was actually the one, our co-author, who did a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of assembling uh, a bunch of uh, auxiliary data about these quarterbacks. So obviously, you know, once we uh, once they're in the NFL, we've got a bunch of summary statistics that we can compute about them. Um, in terms of their 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 passer ratings and and all that kind of stuff, but he went back and and dug in to get a lot of their college statistics. So things like number of games played, um, you know, passing yards, touchdowns, fumbles, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then we also, to the extent that we could, um, got as many combine uh, measurements um, as we could on, on these players. Now going back into the early 2000s, late 90s, it's not very easy to get good combine data, good combine performance data on these uh, on on these folks, but we did we did as much as we could. Um, so that's kind of the the data set that we operated from. You know, we had kind of pre-professional statistics at the college level, and then we had uh, professional performance statistics. So, how big a sample are we talking about at the end? But 15 years, we're, you're only looking at one position, so it's a popular position, but there's only one of them on the field. How many guys you have in the set at the end? Uh, we have uh, about 200 quarterbacks in our sample okay yeah, about 210 okay and and including some of those who as you said don't ever show up with performance statistics in the nfl yeah and i i maybe victor can can remind me of, of what percentage never actually play but it's it's some pretty pretty high percentage maybe 25 or 30 percent of the quarterbacks who get yeah. drafted never even play at all i think i think it's about yeah 20 20 to 25 percent of quarterbacks never play it's a, it's a higher number for quarterbacks than it is for other players right Right. Guys, quickly, big picture, because this is a classic issue in, in data science. How do you feel about a 200 observation sample in this domain? And I, I say that coming from kind of ground zero of the re- reproducibility crisis in psychology, where 
you know, historically people are running experiments with 30 observations, 30 subjects per cell. And now we're going, okay, that's wrong by a lot. Maybe we should have a minimum of 100. Sometimes you need 200. And this is a, this is a, this is an archival study in the field with lots of complicating variables. I mean, those are the data. That's all we observe. As statisticians, how do you feel just at, at a high level about a 200-observation sample? Huh. Well, uh, it would be great if, if somehow the NFL drafted 5,000 I hear you. into the league. <laughs> I, I hear that, you. So. I realize there's not an alternative. That's not, my, that's, that's not a criticism. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I think that um, when, when you look at what we actually did, and we might be able to get, get a chance to discuss that, but when you look at what we did, we really didn't try to get too crazy with our modeling approaches. Um, we used pretty straightforward sort of regression modeling stuff with not too many predictor variables. Um, and so I, I feel a little better given that we kind of stuck to relatively simple models and didn't try to fit some kind of crazy, you know, deep learning algorithm to do anything like that. Yep. Um, you know, we were mainly concerned with um, interpretability, so we didn't really go down that path. Okay. So uh, you you use a couple different outcome measures. You use net points, which is kind of an algorithm based on statistics, kind of a bottom-up, here's the contribution the quarterback makes. And then you use games played, a very simple and reasonable uh, measure. This is what teams want out of the quarterbacks. You're not playing many quarterbacks, so if they're playing, they're making a contribution of some kind. Right. And and so you're trying to understand what explains those things, but using NCAA data and combine data. And what did you find? Um, okay, so I'll, I'll just briefly jump in. So, uh, I mean, generally what we found is uh, where a quarterback is drafted does have some correlation to these success metrics. Um, there's still, you know, quite a bit of variability there. It's, it's hard to predict successful quarterbacks from not successful quarterbacks. I assume, Julian, you're referring to after conditioning on all of these other statistics. You're saying there's a residual variation in draft position, even given their combine data and NCA data. Correct. And, and, I, and, and not only that, but the, the reverse, um, you know, there is no residual effect of combine in college. In fact, I don't think there's even much of a relationship. Well, there might be a little bit of a relationship before you condition on draft you know, draft position, but even, but definitely once you've conditioned on draft position, it's hard to really say anything um, from college or combine does much to predict future success. So in, in some studies have been done on other positions. So for example, wide receiver or tight end, it has been observed that the, the team seem to overvalue combine data. I guess that's one way to put it. So for example, on wide receivers, you might overvalue the 40 times. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing you would find in this analysis if it existed for some combine data, and, and you did not find it. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, for quarterbacks, of course, the, the, the one combine, I mean, there's all sorts of combine numbers, which I think most people would agree are, you know, arguably useless, uh, the 40 sprint time, things like that, right, right. You know, high jump. But the, the, the one that gets thrown around a lot is the Wonderlick score. Right. Um, so this and, is an intelligence test, basically. Yeah, and we didn't find really – we didn't find – well, first, we didn't find really much of a relationship between it and success. And second, um, it, you know, the combine's tricky because it's, it's mostly voluntary – uh, or you get invited, and then some people refuse to go. And then on top of that, nowadays, 
it's hard to it's hard to compare a Wonderlic score now from a Wonderlic score ten or fifteen years ago because now the 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 quarterbacks know yeah. that it's coming and they know it's important or at least they think it's important. So there's a lot more prep going into it than there used to be. Yep. So the, one of the conclusions you got you guys reach is that look there. This tell me if this is fair summary. The teams are basically effectively, efficiently aggregating the data available to them. It's just a really hard task. Is that is that about right? Yeah, I would say that that's probably uh, that's pro- that's a pretty accurate uh, summary. So what we sometimes use this phrase irreducible uncertainty, and people don't like irreducible uncertainty. They forever fighting against it. Essentially, it, it, is it? I think it's fair to characterize. The NFL draft is having substantial irreducible uncertainty, and you just got to maybe you keep on trying to refine your measures year over year, but you accept walking into the 2017 draft that you don't know most of what's going to happen. I think that's pretty fair. I mean, you know, just to put some numbers on it, what we found is that, you know, when we incorporate all the information that we uh, that we have about quarterbacks, um, in terms of you know even even where they were drafted and their college and combine performance. Uh, you know, the on average, this that that model sort of misses um, on average by about 20 to 25 games played in terms of the number of games that a quarterback's going to play. So on a I mean, on a base of what? What is it? How does that fit in the distribution of games played? Well, I mean, you know, in in our sample, the the range of games played was obviously from zero to you know, so if you had 15 years, uh, the highest number of games played was somewhere in the in the on the order of 200. Um, and, you know, the median number of games played was probably, you know, in the 20-ish range. Yeah, exactly, right. So uh, it's a big miss. Right. Um, you know, I, I do think it is an interesting question, though, to, to, to think about, you know, what what percentage of this, how much of this is really irreducible, and what is just, you know, we don't have the, the measures right. yet, and are we going to get better measures going down the road? Well, that was going to, so I was going to ask, you know, in the notes that Patty Hall has given us, um, Julian, it mentions that you've done some stuff on electronic health data, wearable sensor data. Right. Um, are you hoping to write a paper soon? Maybe you've already done this. Maybe it's in press as far as we know. Are you going to talk about how wearable sensor data might be the new, better form of data that's going to predict sports success? Well, actually, I've just started um, in the past couple of months talking to a couple of folks here on campus who uh, who, ha- who do, do some work with the football team. Um, and the football team, um, you know, has been, I think, uh, playing around a little bit with, with wearable devices. Um, I think it's very, very early stages. So at, the, at this stage, it's just a question of trying to figure out what data they can get. Um, and you know, obviously, different uh, different coaches have different degrees of uh, interest in using that data, uh, processing that data, um, and so you know, with the turnover in college coaching, sometimes it's hard to get uh, a coaching staff to really commit to uh, to using those data. Right. Um, so it's not it's it's certainly not a forthcoming article, but I'm I'm definitely interested in seeing what uh, what's possible with the uh, with the sensor based stuff. Julian, I love the distinction you drew. You're pushing back on irreducible uncertainty. We we tend to just lump it all the error term into this uncertainty thing, and some of it's irreducible and some of it's not, and that's why these teams are forever taking this quest of trying to figure out a better indicator of quarterbacks beyond just wearables. If you were to have any data you wanted to improve this model, or if you were to advise the team on what direction to go in terms of collecting data, what would you recommend? 
That is a hard question. Um, this is something teams grapple with big time, and they try lots of different things. But this is one of the biggest personnel yeah. questions in sport. This is one of the biggest personnel challenges in all of sports. I mean, I, you know, what, what I would say is the one thing that I've thought about, and, you know, I think this is a, this is a big challenge, but, you know, I think one of the reasons that it's, it's so hard to predict quarterback success is that a lot of these quarterbacks are being asked to do a ton of things that they've never really done in college, right? They, they're being asked to take snaps under center. They're being asked to, to read a defense at a level that they haven't done before. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're asking them to take this huge leap, and we really have very little basis on which to assess whether they're capable of doing that. So right. I think some teams have been looking into these questions of kind of like virtual reality simulators and kind of putting these guys, uh, you know, on a, you know, in, in one of these uh, little virtual reality headsets and figuring out, you know, where their eyes track and whether they're capable of making the reads and all that kind of stuff. So. I think that's potentially promising, but uh, you know, it's it's really hard to know whether even that's going to give us the information that we need because seeing a guy on on a simulator for half an hour just may not be enough. Right, Victor. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. That is a hard question. I mean, I, I'm sure the teams are doing some of these things, but um, I mean, for me, the the call, I would I would say look at the college numbers and. So, for example, I, I, I know that recently there's been um, work at ESPN doing a total QBR, which tries to, you know, separate out effects of different players for different plays. And I think in, if, they, if something like that could happen at the college level, I don't right. know if it exists, um, because the problem with the college level is, you know, for for one, you've got quarterbacks playing on teams where you know every player on their team is is essentially better than every player on the other team. You've got some quarterbacks playing in pass happy systems and right. some quarterbacks right. playing in run you know running systems, and it's just so putting those numbers on some even slightly better equal footing would be a, a big goal. Yeah, so I was just wondering, just maybe a last question for me. Can you can the analysis you did in your Annals of Applied Statistics paper could it be applied to any position? Let's let's go to the let's go to the nearest neighbor out. Any position in football can it be applied to basketball? Can can the general approach be applied? You have a set of measurables. You're trying to predict an outcome, or do you think there's something about the quarterback position in football that makes it more or less predictable, or the method would be different, or something? So I'll just quickly jump in and then let Julian have a shot. But I'll say that some positions are even way, way harder than quarterback. Um, For example, in our work, we looked around. There is essentially nothing done on the defensive side of the ball. Um, And I think Ben Alomar is doing some stuff with offensive linemen um, to try to assess their blocking ability. But you have to – think about those kinds of positions where for all the shortcomings of quarterbacks at least you've got a lot of things you measure that that are potentially relevant whereas for the defense and offensive line it's extremely difficult to even get those right right so guys let's take it a little further afield and not, maybe not in your methodology necessarily but y'all both come from hockey country and hockey is really moving forward they've probably they're not they're not quite with basketball but the technology is comparable to basketball do you anticipate doing some work on hockey 
I mean, I'd love to if the data. If I, you know, I'm always open to a project. And and Julian, you're you've got the Frozen Four. Is it Minnesota always in the Frozen Four? You got some college hockey, some serious college hockey where you are. Well, that seems like it. They they say that the uh, the hockey team here is uh, the the Gopher hockey team is the toughest ticket to get in town. Is that right? That's good fun. <laughs> well, listen, guys, we don't want to be the cheap radio talk show that says, "Hey, should the Browns take Trubisky?" But <laughs> but we do. I am curious. Y'all do all this work. You have to be paying attention next Thursday with a little bit more interest than the average viewer. What will you be? What are you pulling for? What are you looking for? Honestly, as a as a Jets fan. I'm I was they, trying to forget that part of it, Victor. I, so. I'm trying to stay. I'm staying. Here's my thoughts on the Jets. They have proven to me that they do not know how to evaluate quarterbacks. Oh, that's true. And so, if for me, I'm thinking, stay away from quarterbacks Just don't in the draft <laughs> and get a quarterback via some other Good. avenue where there's much lower variant. You know, much more certainty about who you're getting. Got it. All right, Julian. I think that uh, you know part of part of the outcome of our work is that you know these teams are seem to be doing as good a job as they can aggregating the data. So it's hard for me to sit here and, and sort of armchair quarterback and say, well, you know, they should have picked this guy or that guy ahead. Um, I will say that you know with Trubisky, I, when you have such a small sample in terms of data that you can even use to try to predict, um, you know, NFL success. I think that might even add even more, even more noise. So I think right. the the, uh, the prediction interval for, for somebody like him in terms of likelihood of success is just super wide. I just think we have very little information. Right, right. All right. Well, guys, I hope you do enjoy the draft next week, and we really appreciate your time talking to us this morning. Thank you. Thanks very much. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. That was Victor, Victor Adana, Associate Professor of Mass Stats and CS at McAllister, and Julian Wolfson, Assistant Prof in the Division of Biostats at University of Minnesota. They are the co-authors of some new research submitted to the, the the Annals of Applied Stats on predicting quarterback performance in the NFL. That has been three quarters of this week's episode of Wharton Moneyball. We've still got a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth and final quarter of our show, Danielle Bruno on the soundboard, bringing us up through the bottom of the hour, as she always does. We're going to be open lines this next half hour. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. We'd love to hear from you. You can also drop us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You have Cade and Eric in here today. Adi and Shane are out doing Adi and Shane things. They will be back. We're always here. Some group of us are always here anyway. 8 to 10 Eastern, 8 to 10 a.m. And then replayed a few times over the course of the week. If you're catching us during a replay, drop us an email. We pick up those emails. You can also follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We have a Twitter feed up and running with a glorious logo that Matty J helped develop. Um, we're just out the phone with a couple of academics, a couple of stats guys. Victor Adana, he's at McAllister College uh, in the Math Stats and CS group. And Julian Wolfson, also in Minnesota. He's at the University of Minnesota in Biostats. And they did a, uh, they have new research out on the predicting NFL quarterback performance, which is, I think, probably 
the biggest challenge in sports personnel? I mean, you know, drafting drafting pitchers in baseball is right up there, but I'd say this is there's more uncertainty and more at stake. There's well, definitely more at stake. There's only one quarterback at a time for an NFL team. Yeah, I thought your question about, you know, getting to the idea of order of magnitude, as he, as uh, I think it was Victor that said, you know, kind of their error of measurement is about 28, uh, you know, net points and then you, or games played. 25 games started. Yeah, yeah and then you no, asked, well, played. yeah, where is that in the distribution? Well, the median's 25. <laughs> All right, so then I'm saying that's, I mean, that's not so good, right? It just shows that the it's amount hard. of irreducible uncertainty, or at least the amount that they could Pre- reduce. Presently re- yeah, reducible. Presently reducible, irreducible uncertainty is large. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that kind of what struck me the most. And um, Now, it, Eric, he, they're, they're constrained to only deal with publicly available information. How much advantage? You've worked inside teams. Absolutely. In How much advantage do you get whenever you can add in scouts' expertise, uh, interview information, that kind of thing? I think it's a huge amount. Um, one of the things that, you know, one of the mantras I tried to uh, bring, actually, I got this mantra from a couple of BYU guys, uh, Shane Reese and Gil Fellingham. Uh, they told me a long time ago, they gave me something I've never forgotten. They said, Eric, if you want to evaluate an individual player, I've said this on Morton Moneyball a number of times, you have to score every player on every play. Mm-hmm. And so the data you don't have is, so someone, whether it's watching film or now there's trying to get towards automated, you can literally score every player, the quarterback on every play, not the outcome of the play. Could there have been a better opportunity on that play? Oh, the ball wasn't picked off. Yeah, but it was almost picked off. And so there are... So real quickly, you don't mean every player on the field. You mean every player you're evaluating. You want every play he makes scored. That is correct. And here's here's the thing. You say scored. You need it scored on like 50 dimensions, 75 dimensions. When guys scout these guys, the traditional scouts, they're going to note either explicitly or implicitly 25, 30, 40 dimensions. Well, that's why, you know, in some sense, maybe at some level, humans can be replaced by computers that just absorb everything. But, you know, Kate, you were just implying something which I agree with, which is somebody, a, a person that has experience watches a play, they may notice 40 or 50 different things. They may notice complex interactions which go into their overall evaluation. For a computer or an automated system to be able to measure all of those things, very, very non-trivial to do. I can tell you the work I did with the Eagles, um, this, we looked at, we did exactly a similar thing that Victor and Julian talked about. Let's take NFL data, Let's let's take sorry NCAA data. Let's take combine data. Let's take scouts data. Let's take psychological data. Let's take background variables. You know, did you come from a single parent home, multi parent home, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Let's put all of that into a model and see where you know where are we still from an economics point of view. Where should we invest in data collection? Was one of the questions we asked ourselves. So, by, by the way, this is a fantastic example of human machine collaboration that. That, that I think sports teams are better at than non-sports teams, but that non-sports teams are going to get better at over time. We tend to draw this kind of false dichotomy between purely expert systems, subjective evaluations, and purely machine stats. The, often the real advantage is the ability to bring these things together, and it's not easy to do. Well, don't I mean, in my home field of marketing, we do this all the time. Um, I'm trying to predict what the customer is going to do next. There's two camps, people that use past transactional data, or surveys. I don't remember someone coming down and said it had to be or. Right. Why can't you use both of those <laughs> sources of information? Really so good. we fight that in my home field of marketing all the time. Right. Okay. So, Eric, you know, we, we at the top of the show or somewhere in the last hour and a half, we've talked about how 
how much fun it is that Philadelphia is hosting the NFL draft. So for years, of course, it was at Radio City Music Hall in New York. A couple of years ago, they ran into some kind of negotiation problem there, and, and, and they said, okay, we'll just leave New York. And now they're bouncing around. It lands in Philadelphia this year. Turns out Philadelphia was the host of the first ever NFL draft back in like 1936 or 37, something like that. So we're hosting this thing next week. First round is on Thursday. What has caught your eye, Eric Bradlow, about the NFL draft this year? So last night, as I was preparing for the show, I thought, you know, let me go on to ESPN. Hold on, you were preparing for the show last night? Yeah, you know By what that, happens. you mean watching three televisions worth of sports? Yes, but sitting in front of my computer doing research while I was doing that, because I need to come in, keep it real, come in with content. I, I, I know the responsibility that I have on this show. <laughs> you carry a lot of water on this uh, show. I do. There. So now, well, we all do. But now, while I was watching all the sports and typing, I decided to go on to ESPN Outsiders, try to get an understanding of the, you know, the 32 players projected to be in the first. First round, and what caught my eye was the low amount of variation from the top level rated player. You know, they have this zero to 100 score to the bottom rated player in the first round. So, God, for example, this, uh, um, Miles Garrett, who many people, defensive end from Texas AM, is rated at the top, and he's given a score of 95. On a zero to one hundred scale, um, T.J. Watt, who I who is an outside linebacker for Wisconsin, who's the 32, 32nd projected pick. You want to guess, Cade? If ninety five is the top, how far down do we go when we're at the thirty second pick? Well, I, I don't know the scale at all, so it's not. It's, I don't know what the other end is or what the. Well, let's put it this way: I'll say a second or third round pick would probably be somewhere in the seventies. And so, just to give you an idea of the variation, someone toes in the later rounds would probably be in the sixties. Okay, on this so the scale. average draft pick's going to be in the seventies somewhere, probably. Right. So okay. between the top and the bottom of the first round, it goes from ninety-five Miles Garrett to eighty-eight for T.J. Watt. As a matter of fact, between eighty-eight. And number four, it goes from 92 to 88. So the thing that caught my eye was the standard error of measurement would have to be so low that between most people would say there's a big, massive difference between the fourth pick of the draft and the 32nd pick of the draft. But according to this scale, it's a four-point difference, which has to be within the margin of error of I don't know which of these players is actually going to be better. So what do you? So we know. I mean, so four the, points I, for so twenty-eight Eric, we picks. Can make, we can make this a little more precise because teams can trade picks. They do trade picks, and so trade picks have market value, and they're very well established as market value. There's this chart, famous Jimmy Johnson chart. Every team has some version of it now, and it's very well established that the, the value of a draft pick quickly drops off from the top. So the top pick in the draft is worth about twice the 10th or 11th pick and then that pick is worth about twice the last pick in the so there's this very steep curve what you're telling me is that the evaluations that you're seeing don't follow that curve in any form or fashion not only do they not unless the utility of those rankings is highly convex yeah exactly very very convex and let me comment what it suggests to me is something you know you've talked about this many times trade down Trade down. Trade down. And so, you know, you, you sit there if you're Cleveland, and you have the one pick and I think the 12 pick in the draft, and it, and they need help, obviously, all over the field. And given most people believe there isn't necessarily a franchise quarterback out there, if you if, the, if a team offered you, let's say, you know, a couple of a, a one, a two, and next year's one for the number one pick, you'd have to sit there and think, 
I should probably do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, if this Football Outsiders, who you know, ESPN Outsiders, who does a pretty good job, if there's as low variation as there is suggested here, this suggests that teams way overweight the higher picks in the draft, and that trading down makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and getting two or three possible picks. Because I got to imagine if Cleveland ended up with four first rounders over the, or five or six first rounders over the next two years, they're all starting. So, because they've got, they don't have that they much on the shelf. They have holes all right over now. the place. Right. So, I, you know, I'm, you know, that's basically an argument that we've been making for a while, and I'm largely sympathetic. I can tell you that there are some thoughtful people in the NFL who want to go another direction when it comes to quarterbacks. That because quarterbacks are so valuable to a team and so difficult to find, there's a philosophy out there that you kind of can't over invest in quarterbacks when you don't have one it's kind of and consider the research that we just heard about from these guys in minnesota with that much uncertainty you know if, if there's that much uncertainty and you need one you can do worse than just grabbing as many as you can well that's what i so that's now you were talking about what i would call the natural implication that's where i was going to go but since you already went there that would suggest grab a bunch of quarterbacks yeah. to but you know i'd rather flip five coins then yeah. flip two coins. So and, course, and by the way, I would call that signal to noise in some sense. In other words, unless you're so sure that those two coins are really good coins, five coins will lead to a larger expected maximum than flipping two coins yeah, because of the one, uncertainty. One very good or one great, you're much more likely to get that with, with five m- rather than two. And yeah. if you could pick, I hate to say, I don't mean literally pick any five you want, but Given the difference in, you know, right now, the low amount of variation between Kaiser and Watson and Trubitsky and all of these guys, you know, you know, obviously one team is unlikely to draft more than one of them. But you may get somebody at one of these lower rounds. In other words, just start stockpiling quarterbacks oh, I, and flip coins. I think if you don't have a quarterback, there's a very good argument to be made for drafting more than one quarterback. You've got to be able to handle him within the system. You've got to have a coach ready to handle that number of rookie quarterbacks. But I'll take it a step further. You could argue that you know teams tend to think, okay, we'll take our guy high this year, and then we're not drafting a high quarterback for a while. No, this system, this 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 way of thinking says, actually, if you don't have a quarterback, you might need to use an early pick on a quarterback multiple years in a row until you find. Oh, you mean multiple years in a row? Okay, because I'm pretty sure in the history of the NFL, no team with two first round picks has ever taken a quarterback twice in the first round. I agree that you might not want two in the first, but you could well take one early and one later. And with the the uncertainty we observe, it's not always clear which one of those guys is going to work out. I think the data that we're seeing from ESPN outsiders suggests that you should do that. And let me also say, it also suggests that if you have somebody high on your rating scale and that person turns out to drop and you have an opportunity to grab that person, even though it's not, you say, well, we already drafted person X at the three spot. Let's not bother. You should probably draft that person. In other words, draft people with high residuals compared to what you've scored them, basically where you are right now, because you just don't know. It could be injury. The person could not pan out. I wouldn't go – so the logic of, well, we already drafted a quarterback. It's the third round. We have this person really high. I can't believe he's fallen, but we already drafted a quarterback. I wouldn't follow that logic at all. I'd draft that quarterback. Okay, so now we've talked a little bit on both sides of our mouth. We we want them to trade down out of the top of the draft. Yes, I do. But we want them to take as many quarterbacks as possible. So what should the Browns do? They've got Trubisky sitting there. What scares me about Trubisky is that this is what happens with quarterbacks in the draft. When No matter how good the quarterbacks are, somebody's considered for the number one pick. 
So every year, you know, you have a really good quarterback right. crop. Of course, you're talking about quarterbacks at number one, number two, number three. If you have an average quarterback crop, somehow by the time April rolls around, right. someone talking rises. about someone should we take him number one. If you have a bad quarterback crop, it still doesn't matter. It might take until the week of the draft, but now they're saying, okay, you know, Trubisky, number one overall. So I tell you what I would do, but, you know, People can have their own opinions. Hopefully, we'll get some other at, at Wharton W Moneyball or through one eight four four Wharton. This is what I would do. They're sitting there with the twelfth pick as well. I would not draft a quarterback at the number one pick if I could trade but stay in the top five. I would trade down. Like if I could get a top five pick and a second rounder for the number one, I would do it. And then what I would do is I would draft a quarterback in the 12 spot. I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that all of these what appear to be equally good or flawed quarterbacks, <laughs> yeah, right, that right. you can't get one at 12 good. as opposed to number one. And I think there is some heavily good. rated talent at the really top end. And I would draft there, and then I would draft a quarterback with the 12 pick. So you would use that top pick. You wouldn't trade down. Not on no, QB. I would. Tra- I would tra- if I would trade down. I wouldn't trade too far down, but I, I would trade if you somebody trade wanted bit. Trubisky. If somebody loved Trubisky and they or were Miles Garrett, you'd trade or Miles Garrett. If the Jets loved him and I could trade down to the number six spot, okay. and get like say a second round pick and maybe a future second yeah, round yeah, pick, yeah. I would do it in a second because any quarterback I think they would want in their reasonable range will be there at six or twelve. I would get I, I, out of number I, I, one. I'm, I'm I'm pretty good with that strategy. Actually, I think that's a pretty good strategy, especially this year, given the quarterback crop being. There's a lot of folks, all kind of similarly rated. You're going to be able to get somebody at twelve. You're probably going to get somebody you like reasonably at twelve. The only refinement I put on that is I would trade down even further. I, I would take that number one and go. And I'd turn it into a. I'd turn it into some future picks. I'd, I'd I wouldn't bother with stopping in the top five or six. I'd let that number twelve be my first pick, and get as much as I could out of that number one. So that's the draft. I know people are beginning to look towards the season already. So now that we have schedules and, uh, or at least we have, an, we, maybe they're not schedule comes out tomorrow. Set. We have tomorrow at eight p.m. The, by the way, the, NFL the schedule's does, coming out. That by the way, that's such a big day in the Bradlow household because I'm on the phone with my cousin in Tampa. We're already starting to, you know, map out which Buccaneers games I'm going to go tomorrow night at eight p.m. is a huge event. Unfortunately, well, actually, I'll be with the draft with you, but the the actual schedule is coming out tomorrow. Well, right, not so next the, week. Next week's the draft. Tomorrow is the schedule coming out. Big day in the Bradlow household. <laughs> That's fun. All right. So the NFL does a great job of keeping themselves relevant and in the news all year round. Uh, Football Outsiders has just come up with their their forecast for win totals, essentially. So I'm not sure. The, did the Las Vegas books have their win totals up yet? Football Outsiders, one of the better analytics shops out there has just got their 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 windows. What caught your eye about that? Oh, and by the way, Dan Loney. Knowledge, Hi guys. Knowledge of Wharton host, daily host, the one man doing some real work around here. I just, don't I don't get enough time, enough chance to talk sports. Well, so that's why I came in for 10 minutes. W- welcome aboard. <laughs> we're, we're we're we've been talking pretty much every sport, but we're on football at the moment. Yeah. Eric's Eric's intrigued by the by the win totals. What do we got for the Eagles? Seven and a half? Yeah, uh, so there we are. Uh, the Eagles, well, there we are, 7.6. You're not even close, Dan. <laughs> yeah, no. 7.6. How dare I? Um, of course, you know, this is the classic mean reversion prediction, which makes sense. They've got the Cowboys, for example, at 10-6 and 6 next year. 
um, which I, I forget, they went 13 and 3? Yeah. So. 13 yeah. and 3 this past yeah. year. Okay, so, you know, they have them reverting back. They have v- actually very little uh, variation in the NFC East. They got the Cowboys at 10 and 6, the Giants at 8 and 8, the Eagles at 8 and 8, and the Redskins at 7 and 9. So, to me, that's not a huge amount of variation from the top to the bottom of that right. division. If one but, wanted to measure it, one could argue that's one of the more competitive divisions, although the one that they have is the most competitive, and this did catch my eye from the least to the worst, are two divisions that one could argue maybe aren't that great. Um, they've got the AFC South. This is the Titans, yeah. Jaguars, Colts, and Texans. Well, they have the winner of the division at 8-8, eight and eight, oh my. but they have the yeah. loser at 6-10. and 10. Like They all stink. Yeah. Who knows who's going to win that stinky <laughs> yeah. division, but it's all going to be with a bad well, record. Houston doesn't really have a, a quarterback right now. I mean, they're relying on Tom Savage. Uh, I guess a lot of people are figuring that Andrew Luck is going to get hurt again. Uh, let's see, who else is it? Oh, the Jaguars are horrible to begin with. I'm, right. I can't believe you took us to that division second. Well, no one cares about I, that I, I know. Well, here's another division that I care about, the NFC South, the Panthers, Falcons, Saints, and Bucks. Um, they have all four teams within two games of each other. They have the yeah. Panthers and the Super Bowl Winning, oh, oh, they didn't win the Super Bowl. Almost winning Super Bowl <laughs> Falcons. They have both of them at nine and seven. I'm so, going to take the over, so, brother. I'm going to find out if I can bet in Vegas. I'm betting over for the Falcons at nine and uh, seven. Really? Eric, you, this is mostly what I'm hearing is very prudent, conservative. Lots of regression to the that, mean. Exactly. This is what you do. This, this is what when you, have you an do. Analytical model. Yeah. There's a ton of regression to the mean in the NFL. If you just set aside, if you just look at records alone, set aside anything you know about personnel. Didn't so, regress the Patriots and the Steelers that much. I'll get to those in a second. Well, if you've got yeah. more information about the team, you're not going to regress as much. But if you if you only have the record, the multiplier are, is something like point three. So you're going to bring them back towards five hundred, all the way thirty percent, thirty percent above. You, you take thirty percent of their residual above five hundred. You, they get that credit for the next season. So just to, just for our fans out there, so what Kate is saying is, if let's say you went ten and six last season, you're two games above five hundred. Just Right off the bat, you take point thirty percent of that, which is point six. So now, just by mean reversion, forget anything else, you're back to nine point four. So now, yeah. all of a sudden, you've uh, other way around, even more eight point six. So you revert oh, oh, six se- points. You yeah. only keep thirty yeah, percent, and you revert seventy. You keep thirty percent. So that's, that's wow. Much... That's even more impressive. Yeah, exactly. So that explains the Cowboys at thirteen and three last year, Five and they've got them at three point five. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that would be a matter of fact. Yeah. Okay, so give us some divisions that don't that aren't regressed quite that hard. Well, they have the Patriots at thirteen. And three, that is impressive. That you is, might even call it. Is that, hey, those guys are in Boston. Is Aaron just putting his thumb on the scale? Come on, I don't know, but I'll tell you what else. <laughs> this is this is assuming this is of course using last year's um, schedule. Last year, sorry, uh, records. Do you know what the Patriots' strength of schedule is? At least according to this. Oh, I would think it's probably fairly low. Um, is thirty-two out of thirty-two low enough for you, Dan? Yeah. You yeah. know the thing about yeah. that, though. The thing about low. That, yeah. yeah, but there's not that much variation in NFL strengths of schedule. They balance it pretty well, so there's yeah. it's nothing like college at all. But well, the other factor about that is, though, is you play certain divisions well, your division, on certain years. That's true. Your div- so if that division is down that but year, but even more, your own division. So some right, people are in. Right. Week, you know, we talk about the AL. We talk about the AL East in baseball having such a tough right. And we've got a little bit of that in football. Well, we're as well. just I'm just guessing. I don't know this is true, but if the AFC East is playing the AFC South and the let's say the NFC South, then that's going to say oh, yeah. I mean if those are the in divi- in conference and out of conference that they're playing yep. and their own conference, their own division stinks. Yep. You could easily imagine 
as even as a one seed, why their strength would be thirty two. Where's the, where's the NFC well, West? What, we, I, we need units for that, Eric. We need to know what the the swing is on expected wins. It, it, oh, from who to who? From on, that division, on the top of the strength of schedule to the bottom of the strength. Okay, of schedule. so my claim is so, that it's not going to be all right. Very so high. New England Patriots, well, I don't, that uh, the New England Patriots they have is the highest mean wins thirteen and three strength of schedule thirty two. The team with the hardest strength of schedule, the Dallas Cowboys. And they're at ten yeah. and six because so, they yeah. play Washington, New York, is, and, and Philadelphia. I, I don't think there's a two game swing from top to bottom unexpected. I'm going to go with like one and a half. So I'm, yeah. so from middle to the top is going to be three quarters of a game, half a game, something like that. It's my it's my. Take. Well, something else we talked about just quickly. The other thing that's always interesting in these predictions is you have to predict in aggregate. We know the individual predictions may not be that great, right? But Right. You, you 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 predict the aggregate of all the teams, and this will probably be a pretty good Let about me, the distribution of wins and losses. That's right. Let me give you a couple other. Just in honor of Dan Rooney, who passed away this oh, year, yeah, what do they yeah. say for the Steelers? This is one of the best franchise, most respected franchise yep. uh, in, in, in sports, really. And they do vary in their respect. Rooney passes away. What is, are the Steelers' expected wins? Oh, uh, the Steelers' expected wins are pretty good. The Steelers' expected wins. Now I just got to find it here. Thirteen and three. Also, there you go. Yeah. That's a big deal. That okay. caught my eye. Yeah. Thirteen uh, and th- same as the Patriots. Yeah. Thirteen and three for the Steelers. And Ben Roethlisberger is ready to retire. Almost jump over to the NFC. Seattle. Seattle eleven and five. Okay, so with the hmm. Cardinals at ten and six. So they didn't obviously take a lot of stock in the Cardinals last year. All right, that's great fun, man. A little, uh, a little looking forward to the NFL here from the midpoint of April. We're going to get refreshed on that next week with the NFL draft. That has been another show, another Wharton Moneyball. We do two hours live every Wednesday morning. This has been Cade Massey and Eric Bradlow today. Audie and Shane will be back, joined for the last seven or ten minutes by Dan Loney, who's going to be rolling in here and taking the studio over for the next couple of hours, so stick around. Thank you to Patty Hall for sitting in for Maddie J. Thank you for Danielle Bruno. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.